when it comes to your finances, you think you've done it all. You've saved, you've researched, and you've invested all that you can. Now it's time to take those investments to the next level by using the brand behind every great investor, Yahoo Finance. As America's number one finance destination, Yahoo Finance has everything you need, whether you're a seasoned trader or just dipping your toes into the market. Join the millions of investors who trust Yahoo Finance to guide them on their financial journey. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com. This podcast contains explicit language. Hello and welcome to So That Happened, the HuffPost politics podcast about things that happened in politics. I'm your HuffPost host, Arthur Delaney, joined in studio by my colleague and HuffPost senior White House correspondent, S.V. Date. Hey there. And my other colleague, Jessica Schulberg. Hello. We are in the eighth month of the toddler presidency. And this week really brought that home with a dispute between the president and his own secretary of state, Rex Tillerson, who called the president a fucking moron. And I apologize to our listeners. I know this is a family-friendly podcast, but that's what he said. Reportedly said. (laughs) Oh, reportedly said, according to sourcing that he himself did not dispute at all. So I'm going to go ahead and believe that it's true, because why wouldn't you say that if you're Rex Tillerson? We've all said it. Well, (laughs) Sure. In moments of exasperation, we may have resorted to the F word. But anyway, Jessica, you're our our foreign policy correspondent. What is going on with (laughs) Trumpy and Rexy? Uh, It's hard to say. So NBC reported on Tuesday, Wednesday morning or Tuesday. Wednesday morning. That Rex Tillerson had been extremely frustrated with Trump. I think think it was over the Boy Scout speech where Trump basically went and talked to a bunch of Boy Scouts and made it this like overtly political event and the Boy Scouts of America had to issue an apology and Rex apparently said this guy is a fucking moron. Um, because Rex was a, a Boy Scout. He was an Eagle Scout. He, and he was a leader of that organization. Yeah. Um, it's a big deal. These guys don't mess around. Um, so when news of that broke, you know, it's kind of it would have been like a small-ish chuckle story. Like everybody knows that Rex Tillerson is not happy with Trump. Everybody knows that he's been marginalized and sidelined. Um, but the peculiar thing was is that Rex Tillerson, who very rarely speaks to the media, he doesn't do these big press briefings on policy issues the way that John Kerry often did. Um, he schedules this press conference on Wednesday morning. It was like this big thing. Um, you know, the State Department press corps there. Everybody was watching it on C-SPAN and everyone's like, is he really holding a press conference to talk about whether or not he called Trump a moron? Is Are we going to war? Like, is this a policy thing? Like, what on earth is going on? <laughs> are we going to and, war? It's and, so funny. You know, <laughs> lo and behold, he held a press conference to, to tell everybody that he's not going to quit his job as Secretary of State. He's very happy. Trump is very smart. He wanted to make sure that you knew how smart Trump was, that his America first foreign policy is really, really great. And this is a man who gets results. And then a reporter said, hey, <laughs> hey, wait a minute. 
Did you call the president a moron? And he said, I am not even going to dignify that question with a response. In other words, he didn't deny it. Yeah, he really said it. <laughs> he and went he just, through and he like denied like categorically that like, he didn't meet with Vice President Pence to get talked into staying. He denied all of these other things very, very specifically. Didn't really address the moron thing. And then when asked about it directly, dodged the question. It, it is almost as if he called the press conference to confirm the NBC News story. Yes, I think the president is a moron. Now there's a SB, smart moron. This this fits a a pattern that we've seen going all the way back through the campaign of uh Trump having disputes with people who work for him and and undermining them. Yeah. And having to be treated sort of like a a child. This is something that I heard during the campaign right after the nomination uh, that he won in, in Cleveland and and before the Democratic nomination. And the, and the way they talked about him was like, if you're going to criticize the president, you have to start out by saying all the nice things he's done in the past day or two or three and say, you know, you did this really well and you said this. Was. But, you know, maybe on this particular thing, you could have phrased it a little. In other words, you got to treat him like the way you treat a three or four year old, right? You want positive reinforcement first and not too harsh with the criticism. And that's it's amazing that pretty much everyone who deals with the president uh, will say, yeah, that's kind of how we got to do it. Right. So what I mean is in linking this to the, the past examples of, of toddler presidency is that Tillerson called this press conference as if to – I mean we're jokingly saying he, he uh, was really calling him more. But really he was trying to assuage the president. Vice President Mike Pence had reportedly met with Tillerson and tried to coach him on how not to offend Trump because the, the background here is that – Trump and Tillerson aren't getting along. Trump the other day tweeted that Rex is wasting his time negotiating with uh, North Korea. So it's, as, it's an example of the lengths to which people have to go to try to seem like they're being nice to the president in order to, to have their loyalty a, in this very creepy public way. Right, right. And, and in order to preserve a functioning government. And, you know, and, and there are folks within the foreign policy establishment who kind of accept we're not going to make any progress in the next three and a half years or whatever. As long as we don't accidentally go to war, that's a victory. And so they see Tillerson as an adult who we may not agree with his crazy idea of reorganizing the State Department. We may not agree with a lot of the stuff he does or where he came from or any of that. But at least he's not one of these minions who are going to do exactly what Trump wants him to do. And that's what they're pleased about. And so these things are kind of worrisome to them. And uh, I mean, this was him acting like a minion. Like, this was very reminiscent of months ago when Trump was on TV surrounded by all of his top aides, and they all had to go around in a circle and say why they liked working for Trump and how great he was. Like, this is this is the type of, like, state propaganda that you see not in America before now. I think um, Eric well, I, I, Adel- think, hmm? I think he partially preserved his dignity by not categorically <laughs> not taking back the moron I part. I completely disagree. He allowed himself <laughs> to get trotted out there. It's just such a waste of time. He's our country's top diplomat. He has so many things he should be doing, and he's going to, like, carve out a section of his day to go on TV and, like, address whether or not he thinks the president is dumb. Like, well, he, he, it's like, humiliating. It's degrading that the top diplomat is spending his time doing what's obviously just a call from the White House being like, hey, you know, you really hurt the president's feelings. Like, you need to you need to <laughs> tell the country that you didn't mean it. Okay, let's say, he, retain, let's say he retains his dignity and doesn't go out there and do that call and gets fired. And instead we get Secretary of State uh, Omarosa 
or I don't know, uh, maybe Steve Miller. I mean, think about – I mean, not saying that these guys would get confirmed by the Senate, but that is the worry, that if you get rid of these people who have shown that they can be adults in their lives, uh, and if you get rid of them, if they leave, if they quit, if they get so fed up, you're going to get people like Mike Flynn. You're going to get people you know, who have been are, run are out of the – Are you though? I mean the, the Daily Beast reported later that day after Tillerson's bizarre uh, you know, swearing of fealty that people in the White House were shocked he didn't just resign. Yeah. Because that's what Trump wants his exactly. people to say. Now, Trump himself has shown repeatedly that for all his you're fired personal branding, he's very afraid to exactly. actually fire anybody. Jeff Sessions Especially is still there. Especially after Comey. Right. I, I mean, Tom Price resigned, but I, he did that to himself. He wasn't close with the president. He could have stayed. Trump doesn't fire people, partially because – the Senate's not going to – I don't think the Senate will confirm just anybody. I think – Especially not now. I think in the beginning right. there's a little bit more pressure to like shove through the nominations because you don't want to be accused of obstruction. But when you have a secretary of state who like I wouldn't say by all accounts was doing a good job but you know who wasn't doing anything insane and if he gets pushed out because he wouldn't make a public loyalty pledge to the president, I don't think people, Republicans like Corker and uh, Susan Collins and some of the more moderates are just going to rubber stamp someone crazy. And I think we should also keep in mind that uh, Rex Tillerson's number two at the State Department, Sullivan, is super popular at Foggy Bottom. I mean people people love him. He's a career diplomat. He knows what he's talking about. I don't think that uh, preserving his job as the adult in the room is really a good enough excuse at this point for putting up with all this. <laughs> right. They, they, I mean, they have to prevent him from resigning. That's kind of, I mean, Mike Pence was coaching him on how to be nice to president, but also begging him to stay is, is how I read it, because they're not going to get another guy through there. And they've been explicitly told that in the case of Attorney General by Chuck Grassley. So Trump has no pull with the Senate at this time. Yeah, and it's funny that Pence is the one delivering this message because I spent a couple of days with him last week traveling around, and it was remarkable that he would start whatever event, speech that that he was at with a few sentences of the dear leader talk, mm-hmm. right? Oh, how wonderful the president is and his great ideas. And, and then that done – he went on and spoke like a normal, standard, run-of-the-mill Republican like you would hear over the last 25, 30 years, and there would be no more of uh, Trump, Trump who. It was just normal Republican talk. So Pence because has got it down. he's only listening for the first couple of sentences anyway. Well, you know, but if there's anyone who's mastered this, it's him. Because And, and then I think we see a lot of that um, on in public statements by other folks. It's, oh, well, you know, the I, I hear that from Tom Bossert, the guy who's running the uh, the hurricane recovery stuff in Texas and in Florida. Start off with the dear leader remarks and then move on to facts and things that you actually know about. It's good that you've got your eye on Mike Pence because he's running a campaign for the presidency with unprecedented funding for a vice president at this stage in the game. And it's entirely likely that he'll be – on the top of the ticket at some point, if not in the next election. Or next month. Right. I mean, who knows what will happen? Who knows? what? But it seems like Pence is clearly positioning himself as taking that job. He's got a leadership pack that is raising phenomenal amounts of money. And actual other Republicans in the country see him as the Republican in the administration. That's amazing. We're having a little fun with uh, with, uh, with Rex Tillerson. But the context, the immediate context of this is Trump undermining his back-channel negotiations with North Korea, the country that Trump is threatening to completely annihilate, the country that called him the U.S. dotard and has said it will, you know, annihilate us, I guess. 
And, uh, you know, they really could send some nuclear bombs our way or towards one of our allies. And we really could send some nuclear bombs to them. Like We're this not could saying a- this is good, right? I mean, we're pointing out this would be a bad thing. Yeah, right, well, sure. I preface this by that. saying <laughs> that we're joking around, but there's something un- oh, absolutely. unfunny right, right, about right. it. Like, it's, it's a little sick, actually, that our diplomatic, our secret delicate diplomatic effort with North Korea is being undermined by a president because he's annoyed. Well, yeah, on Twitter. I mean, these are official statements, but yeah, but, they're, but it's they're even also more tweets. ridiculous that he's undermining it with some like angry morning tweet. It's not like he's made some thoughtful deliberation and he's like, you know, after months and months of considering and talking to all of my aides, I think that there actually is no diplomatic path forward because of this, this, and this. He just wakes up. He's pissed off because Kim Jong-un insulted his manliness and he fires off a tweet. Right. So that's what happened. He has been getting all the news for threatening North Korea. Then there's a couple stories about how as if to throw cold water on that from the State Department, you know, we've got some back-channel communication here, everybody. Uh, we're trying to avert nuclear catastrophe. And Trump rolls over in bed and looks at his phone. He's like, oh, hell no. <laughs> and he hits send. And it completely just, – just to trash Rex Tillerson for that. Wow. So people could die. <laughs> All right. All right. All on that note, Arthur. Um, I'll see you all I did, later. I did want to point everyone. out, though, earlier you did say that we were in the eighth month. We are in the ninth month. We have finished eight and a half months. I don't Time wanna... flies when you're okay, having so fun. Okay, so just want to say that we've, we've, we're through more of this than you said. All right. Just no, put nothing that. makes me more upset than screwing up the temporal <laughs> relationship of things. So I'm ready to apologize <laughs> to our listeners for getting that wrong. Uh, I hope you guys have a good weekend, or if you're listening to this, you know, whenever time it is that. That, that's great. Uh, SV. Jessica Schulberg, thanks for talking. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. When it comes to your finances, you think you've done it all. You've saved, you've researched, and you've invested all that you can. Now it's time to take those investments to the next level by using the brand behind every great investor, Yahoo Finance. As America's number one finance destination, Yahoo Finance has everything you need, whether you're a seasoned trader or just dipping your toes into the market. Join the millions of investors who trust Yahoo Finance to guide them on their financial journey. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com. It's great being here. We're back. This is Arthur Delaney. I'm joined in studio by my colleague, Julia Craven. Hello. And my colleague, Nick Wing. Hey there. This week in America, we had the worst mass shooting in modern history. It's, I mean, it was the worst mass shooting in American history, period, outside of a war. And, right? I mean, what? why, no. why, why do I keep no, seeing this? No, that's qu- not true. <laughs> why do I keep seeing the qualification that it is the worst mass shooting in modern Political history when you know almost sixty people were killed and five hundred were were sh- wounded, shot. 
Explain. I'm going to let Julia Julia explain <laughs> this, but let me first let me first. Uh, she may be surprised to know that I have an actual disagreement here because I I follow these these mass shootings pretty pretty frequently <laughs> pretty frequently, <laughs> and a, a lot of the conversation over mass shooting is how do you define a mass shooting? And by this point, there's a pretty well accepted definition of a mass shooting as being these events in which. One or maybe two shooters go into a public place and they kill a lot of people. Wait, uh, wait I want to come back to this. Yeah, what yeah. What is Julia going to say? So, so th- anyway, that so <laughs> I I think this is a, is I would call this the deadliest mass shooting in U.S. history I think for that reason. I think that's probably the default understanding for most people. Reasonable people would disagree. Julia, as Julia will explain. <laughs> I'm ready. Let's argue. Let's go. Oh, so oh God, I didn't come in here to argue for once. Um, no, so. The the issue, well, it's twofold, right? Like, personally, I think qualifying mass shootings is kind of bad. <laughs> um, I don't think we need to say the most deadly or, you know, anything like that. The fact of the matter is that over 500 people are injured and about 60 people are dead. Um, but the issue with saying that it's the deadliest shooting in U.S. history is that it erases the massacres of enslaved black people and natives and just black people in general. Um, granted, a lot of the debate has been this is the deadliest shooting by a single gunman in American history. And that's true. Um, as far as I know, that's accurate. Um but still, when you when you say that it's the deadliest shooting in U.S. history, you're erasing all of these horrible things that have happened historically to black and brown people. So that's kind of the that's the issue with it. And we, we've had we've massacre. Had, there were you know race riots, and, right? And exactly. Separate. And there are situations. Mean, the, the race right, riots, exactly. like the one in Oklahoma, uh, what a hundred years ago. I mean, that was many people shooting many other people. This is like the worst. I think. I think. Nick, well, you guys are basically agreeing that in the popular imagination, a mass shooting usually means one individual going crazy and getting lots of other people. I do at the same at the same rate. I I completely agree that when we talk about these horrible traumatic experiences of mass mass death to ignore the fact that some of the darkest chapters and deadliest episodes involve people of color in the United States. We should talk about that. I just found that the parsing over the word mass shooting and then having to put modern and all this, like there are two different debates in my mind, but, but I get, I get the, the concern over, over ignoring the historical context. And and I think that makes sense. And this came up when the pulse shooting happened too. People were saying, Hey, like be careful calling this the deadliest in us history. If you're going to qualify it, say that this is the deadliest by a single gunman. Yes. I think in general, there is a lack of awareness of, state-sanctioned political violence against black people in American history. And natives. And natives, of course. And, but this shooting, uh, there was a strong racial component to the news coverage, I thought, that was a, a little more noticeable than there, than had been in years past because it immediately came out that this was a white guy and nobody was calling it terrorism. And that's that was obviously weird because we have a president who never hesitates to call something terrorism – when there is a black or brown perpetrator here or anywhere else in the world. So w- what was up with that? Yeah, not only was nobody calling it terrorism, no one was even thinking it was terrorism, right? The immediate thing was, oh, he's a white guy, so it's not terrorism. And I think that was part of it was that the jump to um, blame this guy for being part of a, a an other movement to other him 
was not there. And even the previous shooting, the Pulse shooting, when it came out that the guy's name was Omar Mateen or whatever, it was like, oh, ISIS. It, oh, it must be ISIS or like, oh, his dad is from Afghanistan. You know, he shouldn't have been here in the first place. There are those immediate reflexive decisions to uh, to place this as part of some sort of not our fault issue. Whereas this was like, this is just gun violence and we have to come to terms with this. And, you know, that itself is racially coded. <laughs> so people think, so the guy, we, at this point, a clear political motive has not been ascertained. Like this was, this is still a very strange. No motive at all, as far as we can tell. Uh, and so that, that seems like a barrier to calling it terrorism. But it's terrorism. I mean, it's a crazy mass shooting. Of lots of people, why why can't you call that terrorism? Because now we're now we're getting into the legal definition of terrorism, which there are multiple definitions of terrorism on the books, and it makes it pretty much impossible to call something terrorism. Um, and the defining federal definition is it has to be linked to some sort of organization or some type of um, group effort to inflict these acts upon people, or it has to be a hijacking involved. Things like that. Nick had a provocative piece that essentially argued that we do have that in this instance and that it was it was terrorism associated with gun ownership because you have rhetoric from people such as Bill O'Reilly who said after the shooting that, well, this is the price we pay. I mean, this is just something that's going to happen and we have to have these mass shootings every once in a while because the Second Amendment is in our Constitution. Yeah, I mean, I don't think I don't think Bill O'Reilly supports this, but if you are complicit and accept it as a price that you pay for mass civilian gun ownership of these high-powered rifles that are semi-automatic and can be adjusted legally to shoot off hundreds of rounds in a minute, and that doesn't bother you, and your your response to that is, oh well, or I need to shoot my guns, then in my mind, I mean, there is a level of, of complicity there. And, you know, this is, as, as you said, this is terrorism in the, the base form of that word. People were terrorized and they are. I uh, mean, it instills terror in everybody. In it a reminds way, everybody that we could be randomly shot by somebody for no apparent reason. Yes. Uh, related to us as individuals it changes, every time we go outside. It yeah. changes people's plans it, to attend events. Exactly. Like, yeah, it terrorizes Security, people. I mean, the whole apparatus. Yeah. And so there's a, a, a built-in political component, which is that it's part of our constitution and there's a whole political infrastructure led by the NRA that supports uh, policy status quo in which this is going to just happen all the time. Right. And, 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 and it, that was made very explicit. As you reported. Yeah. 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 I, I guess the the crazy thing for me is that when we have terrorism in, in its other commonly understood forms, there's always a discussion about what we should do, how we should stop it. Uh, and, and, you know, there's a policy debate and, and there are controversial ideas put out there, some of them which infringe upon the rights of people in ways that we're not comfortable with. But in the, the wake of a, a gun act like this, a gun violence, mass gun violence like this, there is never an actual robust debate about uh, – Guns are the problem. They are a common factor in a lot of these. What do we do about it? And I'm not even saying mass gun confiscation. I'm not even saying take away people's right to gun. I'm just saying that is literally not a part of the debate. That is a it's not a productive debate because one side comes at it as that is untouchable. And if that is 
the starting point, it becomes very hard to have a robust debate about what we can actually do about this when it comes to guns. For other for other issues, for terrorism, it's not like that, right? I mean, yeah, we can take away some people's right, Fourth Amendment rights. And we can warrantless wiretap. We can do all these various things, but. Uh, it's a different starting point when we're talking about guns. It seems to me that Democrats cede too much ground when they just say, well, yeah, we got a Second Amendment. It says regulate in the Second Amendment. So uh, why, don't, why not start from a point of let's have mass gun confiscation and buybacks, ban uh, semi-auto weapons, semi-automatic weapons that look like combat rifles and large magazines and so-called bump stocks, which they actually might ban. Yeah, I mean, it, it, obviously, the feasibility of of any of those proposals is probably not it would not be that feasible because there's so many of these guns already out there, and this is not a politically viable position because people are wary of the idea of banning guns. But I mean, if you wanted, if Democrats were willing to come out at that position and say, "Look, we're, we'll bargain down, we'll compromise toward the middle to a very a, a way that we can do some of this." In a way that actually would make sense and be effective, I think that's a better place. That's a better place to come from. So, Senator Chris Murphy, who's um, a senator in Connecticut, which is where the Newtown shooting happened, um, he made a really good point on BuzzFeed's new morning news show, AM to DM, um, and he was saying how he had a town hall and he talked to this gun owner, and the gun owner supported background checks and he supported a lot of elements of gun control right um but the issue is that the gun lobbyists (laughs) kind of hype it up into this they want to take your guns and they push so much money into um congress that you know it kind of gets painted as that so i think that a piece of this conversation is the perception amongst gun owners that any type of reform is going to lead to mass confiscations, and that's not what's going to happen. That is literally what they say. I mean, yeah. it's not. It's it's made really clear that oh well, if you take away a large magazine, eventually you'll take away everything, which I think is unreasonable. I you know we I went to a gun show after the Aurora movie theater massacre, which had involved large magazines, and people there were buying hundred round magazines. Because they thought con- Congress would come and ban them. They didn't even – nobody I happened to talk to was like, yeah, I really need this. It's really important. But they're going to they're gonna use this to start coming after guns. Yeah, I mean th- this is part of the uniquely American infatuation with guns. I mean I think a lot of people talk about the different root causes or, or reasons for the Second Amendment. And I think what people don't discuss openly enough is the fact that a large population – likes guns because they are fun to shoot and that you know, these are recreational devices for first and foremost. I mean, yeah, sure, they, they work as self-defense. They work as a defense against tyranny if your government tries to rise up and, and kill you. Not a very good one probably in that case. But Yeah, people uh, with small arms are going to defend themselves from the government if it wants tanks to. Tanks and, yeah. and the planes and the nukes and all that stuff. But but I think you know a lot of people like shooting guns. Guns are fun to shoot. I mean, I got news for you. They're, they're fun to shoot. Uh, the question then, be, but if you if you, people are really willing to admit that that it's for recreational purposes, do you really have a right to have fun over the rights of many thousands of people to live every year, or the rights of all of us to feel comfortable gathering in a centralized place together where there could be a a vantage point to get killed. I mean, I think we're talking about 
at this point really sacrificing a lot of our like basic comfort and liberty and freedoms uh, to just live in safety. And we're giving that those rights away or we're allowing them to be, you know, chipped away slowly by people's right to have fun with big ass guns. And, you know, that I think we should have that conversation. Republicans are actually saying they're going to support banning bump stocks, which are these, uh, you know, you take the butt of the gun and replace it with one that changes it from a semi-automatic in which you have to pull the trigger for every bullet you fire to one where you essentially squeeze the trigger and it keeps shooting. And I know there's this absurd semantic uh, difference. Gun nuts love semantics. They say it's not actually automatic fire. It's just just like automatic fire. And they use that kind of semantic difference to say, you know, liberals will never understand guns. And that that argument to me, the the semantics is very, look, you don't need to spray a weapon. You don't. Like, why Why do you need to do that? It's, you know, I think that's also a piece of it. Like, why Why do you need to – why does your gun need to be able to spray? Uh, people need to know that, in general, jargon is used uh, for political purposes. And it's just like with tax reform where you don't understand what they're trying to do because it's a bunch of weird terms that are not intuitive at all. It's the same thing with guns. Like, oh, it's impossibly complicated. You can't possibly regulate in a way that will be effective because you just don't understand the right. way it works. And it's, it kind of boils down to using your common sense, right? Like you're not in a war zone. You don't need an automatic weapon or a weapon that's just like one. Right. I, I mean, I agree with all of that. I, I think there there is an underlying point which is not usually the one they make. But this, this tends to be that if you don't know a whole lot about guns or about the actual mechanics of them and you try to legislate, you end up coming up with poor legislation. I mean, if you don't know what you're actually regulating and the proper mechanics of it, it can be difficult. I mean, you come up with something like the assault weapons ban. Well, they're, but that's because they're, ref, they're legislating at the furthest margin possible right. to begin with, right. where they can only have a, a small effect because they're already seeding all the ground. But if you had if you had written that bill in a way that maybe were stronger or more actually touched upon the weapons themselves and not cosmetic features, I mean, it may have been more effective. At any rate, I agree that the the pushback you get on semantics is never to to make a more productive debate, right? It's to shut people down because they don't own enough guns or they don't shoot enough or whatever. So I completely agree. It uses a tool to to demean people and to to act make it seem like they're not qualified. So bump, so we have a Republican government right now, and I don't think this would be happening if if Congress or the White House were occupied or controlled by Democrats. Uh, Republicans of their own volition could ban bump stocks because they're obviously totally unnecessary for anything but fun. And they were extremely useful for this guy in Las Vegas who slaughtered several dozen and, and, and wounded hundreds of others. Julia Craven, Nick Wing, thanks so much for being here. Thanks for having us. Thanks. Welcome back. This is Arthur Delaney. I'm joined in studio by my colleague, HuffPost White House correspondent S.V. Date. Sharish, thanks so much for being here. You're very welcome. I'm pleased to be here. We're here to talk tax reform. Republicans are making a big fuss about how they want to reform the tax code, and they say they're definitely going to do it this year. And I'm here to tell you that they're not, because they're not able to pass things, and they have, haven't got good 
politics working for them, their disagreement within their own party on what to do. So, you know, you hear people saying Republicans are going to do tax reform, but they're not. That's the Arthur Delaney prediction on tax reform. It'll be just like Obamacare. It'll collapse in an embarrassing heap, uh, probably repeatedly between now and next October. So that word reform, what exactly do you mean by that? Because that's a strange word. I haven't heard it being used seriously in, in a little while now. Reform in this context means that they're not just trying to reduce tax rates. They are trying to do that, but also mess with a lot of things such as deductions and exemptions, which I, I think sound really mysterious and complicated to people, but are, are just things like tax rates that they will that they gotcha. will right. mess with. And, and because they won't simply reduce rates, they'll mess with those other attributes of the tax code. I think that's, that's what counts it as reform. Right. Well, okay. Defining it like that, I agree with you. They will not reform taxes. I disagree with you. They will pass something that will cut tax rates, particularly for those groups that they want to t- cut tax rates for, the, the wealthiest. They'll call it reform, but they will do something. Well, but, okay. What would be reform under a stricter definition? Well, let's go back to the actual last reform that we had, right? 1986. And they collapsed the rates back then as if that's a big deal. Of course, back then you didn't have computers doing all your taxes for you. So it was a bigger deal then. You also had like a top marginal rate of what, 70% in the the early 1980s? Uh, Was it still that high? I thought maybe Kennedy had cut them down. Kennedy had cut them down from 90%. So I think they were still above (laughs) 50%, which sounds shocking today. Right. But uh, even more important, I think, than the cuts that happened at the time and the reductions and elimination, some of the the deductions that, that had been there, Remember what they did was they they equalized the rates for earned and unearned income. In other words, if you were making money through investments, through buying and selling stocks, you basically then had to pay the same rate as if you were in a factory making widgets, right? Um, that was a big, big deal. And that's no longer the case. That was changed in the coming years, uh, both by uh, President Clinton, of all people, and then uh, George Herbert Walker Bush. Rates on unearned I'm sorry, income, George Bush. Unearned income tax rates have fallen since then. That's right. They're down now to a maximum of 20%. They had been down to 15% under G.W. Bush uh, in his two terms. But that yeah, those tax cuts, cuts expired, and, and that rate, I believe, went back up to 20 Why is equalizing rates reform? And and just cutting rates, not reform. Well, if you're equalizing rates, if you're making substantial changes in how tax policy will affect behavior, that's reform, right? If you're saying that what we're doing in, in this situation is not good and we want to change behaviors and change the economy, that's reform. If all you're doing is cutting taxes, then that's not really reform. That's just – look, I mean if I tell uh, my kids um, – we're going to have dessert reform, and I'm going to give you all more dessert. Are they ever going to say no? Of course not. <laughs> Are the American people ever going to say no to tax cuts? They will never do that. They think wrongly that they're paying more in taxes than they were five years ago, 10 years ago, 15 years ago. They're paying less. <laughs> all groups. So much. what essentially you're saying is that they will be unable to do things such as double the standard deduction that – Everybody of certain modest level of income is able to use and get rid of personal exemptions and other itemized deductions that are often considered 
loopholes or, or favors for rich people. You think they won't be able to simplify that aspect of the individual income tax code? I seriously doubt it. They could raise the standard deduction by some amount uh, because in the end, they're not really committed to an idea of revenue neutrality. They don't really care if they drive up the deficits. So in, in the end, you can do these things. You can raise the standard deduction. You could you could make lower uh, tax rates for everybody. If you don't care what you're going to do to the debt, all kinds of things are possible. I agree with you that this is where they're going to run into the most trouble. They already have run into the most trouble. They said they wanted to double the standard deduction, which for a family now is $12,000. They'll put it at 24000 And this is their big talking point. We're going to right. create a larger zero tax bracket because everybody's first $24,000 of income will be tax-free as a result of this. And the reason they're talking about it is because it masks the vast changes they would make by getting rid of personal exemptions and other deductions that regular people are able to use already to lower their tax burden. So it's, that, that's where they're having the political trouble as well right. because people in high-tax states where wealthy filers take advantage of state and local tax deductions, which they say they want to get rid of, are saying no. Republicans are saying no. We don't want that. <laughs> They've all out of the gate without putting any details or even saying where they would set the brackets on income levels. They have already screwed up the politics and their own party doesn't want to do it. So you say they'll move on from this wreckage to go ahead and just reduce marginal tax rates. That's correct. I mean, they will cut rates uh, at least a little bit for everyone so they can say we have cut your taxes, all of you when it comes time for elections next year. And and they'll call it reform. They'll call it re- guaranteed, sure. whatever right. they do. It'll be a much hollower reform. reform, I agree. But I don't think they're going to do even that. First of all, they're a little shy about deficits. They're not as shy as they should be, they're not given shy. their past rhetoric. They're not at all shy about No, they're a little shy. No, I they're mean, not that, even a little shy. That's why no. they're scrounging in the, cash, the couch cushions to, to get rid of personal exemptions and itemized state and local tax deductions because they're a little embarrassed about the giant deficits they'd make with their massive rich people tax cut. So they're partially <laughs> offsetting it by taking these other things away with the, and, and that it just happens to have the added benefit that they can claim that's a simplification. They are a little bit blushing. And, and not only that, some members are actually adamant that the deficit – should not be increased. For instance, Senator Bob Corker, Republican of Tennessee, said no. Yeah. No deficits. And, and the reason he's taking this uh, sort of bold stance is he's retiring. Right. Because Trump is making moderate Republicans like Bob Corker look ridiculous. So let's get back to the dessert analogy. I suppose it's possible that a middle school lunchroom, you could say, okay, everyone, we're all going to have extra desserts. There might be two or three or four raise their hands. So no, I insist on having a salad first. And all the other kids will mob them and, and drown them out, and they'll all have extra desserts. No, the Bob Corker's the world. He's leaving, so what does he care about getting reelected? They're all going to – they will not win this one. They will cut taxes. They will increase the deficit substantially, and that's that. Look, this is what every single tax cut in the last 40 years has been about. But deficits aren't the only problem. Even on the order of simply cutting taxes, they're going to have trouble. You and I uh, co-wrote a story this week about the so-called small business tax cut in their plan. So there's there's a couple different forms of business taxes, dear listener. The big companies are C-corporations, and they have a corporate income tax code. Small businesses, which are often just people claiming business income, pay business taxes on their individual regular tax return. 
And Correct. so and so they're saying, you know, President Trump, red line, got to cut those corporate taxes. He wanted a 15% rate. They have settled on 20. So what they said is, well, we can't cut that and then not reduce the burden on the individual income business income that that most businesses use. So they, they're going to put that down at 25%. And it's a mess yeah, it because is a mess. there's this already giant problem of really rich people like doctors and lawyers exploiting – And the president. Right. And, and President Trump himself exploiting the ability to file individual tax returns with business income on them, giving them an unfairly low rate. And they want to take that loophole and make it like 30 times bigger. Well, um, the unfairly low rate that currently exists – only exists if you choose to play games and not pay for Social Security tax and, and Medicare tax. Uh, and that, otherwise, you're paying a higher rate. Well, that's what I'm saying is right. unfair about it. It's it's unfair relative to what other individuals pay on their wages and unfair relative to the corporate income tax code, which includes taxes on dividends after you pay your uh, your your marginal rates on your corporate income. That's true. That's true. But and and we talked about this in the story. If you if you lower that rate to twenty five percent, you're going to get a whole mess of people who are currently uh, in that very top personal income tax bracket of thirty nine point six percent, which may fall to thirty five, which is still a lot higher than twenty five. They're going to say, you know what? I'm no longer an employee. I'm an independent contractor, and I should pay twenty five percent. Boss, please just pay me as a contractor. I would prefer it that way. Right. So there's no reason to think that all conservatives are just going to go along with this because when you have a disparity in business taxes, that's inefficient. That's not tax reform at all. It's, uh, it's, it's not good. And it's going to blow up deficits to boot. So I think there's a lot of reasons that to be skeptical that even that will get unanimous support among Republicans. And they need unanimous support to get this through the Senate or just about unanimous support. That is true. They they can't afford to lose many votes in the Senate. And uh, to what degree is the Obamacare repeal failure instructive for this, for tax reform? I think it's incredibly instructive. I think Obamacare represented 15% of the economy. And they couldn't deal with all the trade-offs there. Taxes, that's 100%. That's everybody. I, I think the, the corporate lobbying is going to really intensify as the committees start filling in the blanks on their extremely blank tax reform blueprint. And they're just going to massacre this thing. They will massacre the reform part of it, the elimination of the loopholes, the deductions, et cetera, et cetera, by, many of which I'll argue, by the way, are not actual loopholes. But nonetheless, they will massacre that part. They will cut rates because it is candy, and they cannot resist giving people what they want, which is more candy. So uh, on, on the point of uh, the president's taxes, by the way, this I, I would think that the cutting of the small business, quote-unquote, tax rate is way more important for him because it means uh, if he were to make as much money as he claimed to have made last year, that would be a cut of $75 million to him personally every year, every year. So the president is so just unbelievably corrupt. <laughs> I mean, this, this is just the cherry on top. After you look at his use of the presidency to promote his personal brand and companies and the massive conflicts of interest with the Trump Tower and properties around the country, it's, it's just shockingly disgusting. Republicans tell me that he's a great businessman and he's just uh, you know, doing what a great businessman does. He doesn't seem like he knows anything 
Uh, and he and this is funny. I'm just telling you uh, what Republicans a, tell me. What's right another reason tax right. reform is not going to work? He, they're going to have this complicated justification for what will be a really weird looking quasi tax reform, and he's not going to like it. Look, I admitted to you, they're not going to pass tax reform. They're well, going I mean, to cut taxes. Well, well, but he doesn't. It's it's going to fly in the face of his promise not to oh, cut taxes. Promises? On the, Are you talking about his promises now? This is going to matter when he's going to crap on it. On this tax cut for the rich, just like he crapped on their Obamacare repeal bill, which I don't think helped them. Maybe it wasn't a, a I huge factor. One thousand percent disagree with you because oh, a thousand percent, yes, oh, ten oh, times more oh, than oh, than, wow. than entirely. Because Obamacare really didn't affect his life in any way, shape, or form, and this affects his life seventy five point seven million dollars per year if they do that cut on the the, the subchapter S corp and LLC businesses. So. We disagree. All right. We're going to leave it there. As usual. Sharish, thanks for coming on. It's my pleasure. Bye-bye. So that's what happened this week. This podcast was produced, edited, and engineered by Zach Young. Our executive producer is Nick Offenberg. I'm Arthur Delaney. And this week we were joined by HuffPost reporters Jessica Schulberg, S.V. Date, Julia Craven, and Nick Wing. So That Happened is available on Apple Podcasts. Check out the whole family of HuffPost podcasts in the iTunes store. And while you're there, subscribe and tell your friends. If there's something you'd like to hear us talk about, send an email to so that happened at HuffPost.com. Thanks to all of you for listening. When it comes to your finances, you think you've done it all. You've saved, you've researched, and you've invested all that you can. Now it's time to take those investments to the next level by using the brand behind every great investor, Yahoo Finance. As America's number one finance destination, Yahoo Finance has everything you need, whether you're a seasoned trader or just dipping your toes into the market. Join the millions of investors who trust Yahoo Finance to guide them on their financial journey. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit yahoofinance.com the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com.